Hi, I'm James Verdeer and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, and sometimes in between, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. For today's episode, I'm joined by Earl Ellis of the University of Maryland, Baltimore County, and Thomas Campanero and Tommaso Sizia, who are both at the University of Padova. They joined me from Baltimore and Italy, respectively, to discuss Natura 2000, which is a protected area network in Europe. In particular, their article was focused on the ways in which that network might be scaled up more broadly with the ultimate hope of protecting half of the Earth's land and seascapes. But I'll let them explain that, the idea behind it, and ultimately some of the ways in which it might be implemented in the future. So let's get straight to the interview. Thank you all very much for joining me today. Thank you. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thank you for having us. Um, before we get into this, you know, the specific contents of the article itself and uh, the Natura 2000 um, initiative and framework, I was hoping we could chat just a little bit about this idea of preserving half of the earth, uh, its origins, and you know, kind of how that's being thought about in the community. Uh, and I'll, I'll leave that open to anyone who'd like to take it. I, I guess I could start with that because I have been working in it uh, since I met uh, Eric Dinnerstein, who's one of the, the leaders in what's called the Nature Needs Half uh, movement, which is very closely related to the Half Earth, but actually precedes it uh, by a few years. It was actually came about uh, through uh, an analysis of different conservation strategies and looking at a variety of targets, and the, the number 50% seemed to uh, represent a safe level of protected areas in a lot of uh, strategic biodiversity planning uh, in, in, a, in a study that was done, uh, I think in 2013. And so at that point, a bunch of folks, and Harvey Locke was the person who really promoted it the most, promoted this idea of nature needs half. And then a few years later, uh, we have uh, the Half Earth book by uh, E.O. Wilson, which calls for a very similar idea of, of conserving half the, the planet for biodiversity. So if you preserve half, you have a good shot at preserving, uh, you know, a large amount of the Earth's biodiversity. That's, that's, the, that's the idea. And, and like I said, uh, the earliest assessment uh, was based on conservation targets that already exist in different countries uh, and that were devised by scientific methods. But there's also uh, the, the basic island biogeography theory that basically uh, that's, that's the basis for E.O. Wilson's assessment of what it takes to preserve about uh, 85% or more of biodiversity, in theory, should be preserved by 50% of habitat. Okay, and now for this, for the rest of our discussion, though, we'll be talking about a conservation network that you know was initiated a little bit well, well before um, you know th this you know half Earth idea came about. But it might be a path to um, you know to getting there, or at least to you know kind of understanding those mechanisms. Um, so we'll be talking about uh, Natura two thousand, and I was hoping that you know any or all of you could just sort of introduce me to that idea and you know kind of when that came about and what it seeks to do. So basically, it's uh, an effort uh, which began in 1992. Uh, at that time, of course, European Union was not the European Union that we know today. So we have to consider that uh, this effort uh, improved with the years and with the um, increase of the number of member states included in uh, the European Union. 
one of the main point uh, was at that time to have uh, just uh, only one piece of uh, regulation for all the uh, member states. Um, and of course, uh, this is the reason why when uh, Erl came to, uh, to Padova University and gave uh, a very inspiring presentation about uh, the half-earth concept, uh, we, we found that uh, probably Natura 2000 can uh, uh, be also inspiring for this concept at the global level. Um, the European Union uh, do not, does not aim to protect nature only inside the protected areas. This is uh, uh, one of the main points because uh, uh, the, the idea is to conserve an ecological network of sites, uh, including habitats, uh, species, and uh, habitat of species. Each of these uh, elements uh, have its own uh, characteristics uh, and its own level of uh, conservation and requirements, which of course uh, would need uh, probably an entire week to be to be explained in the details. But that's, I think, the the, the in general the main aim of the Habitats Directive. Okay, so the idea there being that you know you could you could preserve uh, you know these areas and also ensure that they were interconnected and actually useful because you know it, it it seems that you know one of the potential pitfalls of a conservation network of protected areas would be if it were not set up in a way um, you know that allowed connectivity between areas or that uh, you know selected areas that were the most biodiverse or most in need of protection and instead just focused on you know those areas that were undeveloped. Um, but it sounds like this network has been deliberately uh, constructed in such a way that it will, you know, get the areas that are of most need included um, and also allow those areas to connect across international borders? Yes, so um, the main aim of uh, the Habitats Directive and therefore the uh, creation of Natura 2000 um, what is to uh, achieve a good conservation status of uh, uh, habitats and species, as Tommaso said before. Uh, these are uh, um, species and habitats are listed within the Habitats Directive. Um, the um, point regarding um, connection between member states is in fact this, because we know that, uh, of course, habitats and species uh, are not constrained by our boundaries. Um, and we have uh, a number of uh, uh, Natura 2000 sites, in fact, that uh, uh, are neighboring in terms of uh, uh, member states. Um, the other thing is that based on, these, uh, um, on this uh, directive, we have some um, common aspects throughout uh, um, the different member states that this favors again the connectivity. Um, at the same time, um, the uh, integration with the different uh, um, planning tools, uh, not only 
regarding conservation uh, favor this and favor connecting uh, the different uh, sites. And I can, I can say that one thing that really interested me when we began to talk about Natura 2000 together uh, was, was this diversity of approaches. You know, it's not just this idea, and it, it wouldn't be a viable idea in, in Europe anyway, of kind of keeping people out. Uh, this, this kind of fortress conservation really isn't part of the uh, Natura 2000 strategy, yet it remains the largest conservation network of protected areas in the world. It also has a great diversity of strategies from, you know, preserving uh, practices of farming and, and agriculture that have a long history of conserving biodiversity, such as use of hedgerows and certain types of rangelands, are actually conservation strategies. And that connected very well with, with what Harvey Locke was talking about uh, when, he, when he developed the IUCN category. So protected space, you know, is not just a level one category where essentially the wilderness protection is the only goal. Uh, it rates all the way down to, say, level six and now even beyond to this other effective conservation measure strategies where you're, you're basically doing uh, lots of different incremental strategies to sustain biodiversity uh, in, in a larger area. So half-Earth is not just about this idea of setting aside half the Earth. It's really about uh, changing the way that people interact with the entire planet. So that has a lot to do with the title of our piece, the whole Earth versus half-Earth. You know, really half Earth is a whole Earth strategy. Right. So it sounds like you could have a situation in which, you know, areas that have been long inhabited by humans and, you know, used for some purpose uh, that is preserving of biodiversity as well uh, can remain so. And it's not just about, you know, buying up land, moving people off of it if necessary, um, and, you know, using that fortress conservation strategy. It's actually one that can be integrated with, uh, you know, human lifestyles that have been in place for a long time. I mean, that, that's right, and, and I think the Europeans, through and especially through their experience working internationally through Natura 2000 and the Habitats Directive, have, have a really unprecedented level of experience with working in that part of the world. And I think a lot of the world is really like that. Asia is like this. Africa is like this. Uh, this is not an unusual status, actually. It's very common to have huge areas that are a mixture of different land uses, and to do uh, protection of biodiversity in those kinds of regions, you need this kind of integrated, uh, very flexible st set of strategies that work across different nations, across boundaries, and this sort of thing. And, and they're, they're really the, ma the most major experience of that is really in the European system. Yeah, I agree, Agla, because uh, this uh, binary way to protect in nature, of course, uh, it was common also in Europe before the implementation of the uh, Habitats Directive because, of course, the first uh, uh, way uh, and the most simple way to protect nature is to think of a binary uh, landscape where you have uh, uh, only nature and where you have uh, only humans. Um, and still, probably, if uh, we see in uh, some uh, uh, national African parks, this is the way. Um, I forgot to say that um, among the habitats, we have many so-called semi-natural habitats. 
uh, whose conservation is uh, directly uh, associated to humans. As you said, farming is one of the activity which uh, is not only allowed inside the protected areas according Habitats Directive, but even uh, promoted. Uh, the same is valid for some uh, systems of forest management. Um, of course, it's not always easy to transfer these concepts uh, at uh, European level, because as you can imagine, each country even in Europe has its own history of use and uh, uh, its own history of traditions in managing the landscapes. But of course, the, the idea is uh, to have uh, one single vocabulary, and I think this is very important to, uh, to speak uh, with each other. Uh, one single objective, and another point is not to fix a deadline. I think this is also something that many uh, practitioners of Natura 2000 um, do not understand at the beginning. What uh, the European Commission uh, uh, wants from the member states is that they achieve progresses uh, towards an aim a common aim within, of course, the requirements of uh, the Habitats Directive, which, which uh, again, do not include only nature, but also social, economical, and cultural, and finally, scientific requirements, because science uh, is uh, uh, one of the uh, points that the Habitats Directive explicitly uh, contains in one of its articles. I just want to add a simple example to give an idea also of uh, uh, the overlap or the presence of uh, uh, protected areas as Natura 2000 uh, within uh, uh, strongly um, areas strongly pressurized by humans or with a uh, long history of human activities. If we think uh, that uh, the all, nearly all the entire lagoon of Venice is a, a Natura 2000 site, and we know that uh, uh, Venice is one of the most important and attractive tourist uh, cities all over the world. So uh, the importance of uh, um, protecting uh, habitats and species in these contexts uh, that are not remote areas, but are uh, intensively used lands in, in certain parts. And, and this this question may, you know, um, speak more to you know color rather than letter of the law. Um, but I had a question about um, Natura 2000's inclusion of scientific information um, in its enforcement. You know, this is not a system, uh, you know, unlike possibly some others that's been designed by policymakers who you know are not working from an informed scientific viewpoint. You know, what, what makes this different and, you know, how are scientists brought into the mix, um, you know, either in establishing sites or monitoring and reporting and those types of things? Uh, there is a, a first, uh, uh, the monitoring is done based on uh, a six years uh, uh, report. Uh, these reports 
include also uh, the mapping of the presence of uh, the species and habitats based on a European Union level grid. And um, the contribution uh, to this uh, grid is done by uh, usually scientific uh, uh, organizations or agencies uh, under the control of the environmental authority of each uh, member state. Uh, the, um, the advantage is that at the end uh, we have uh, uh, one single map prepared with uh, uh, the same uh, level of resolution and uh, with the same level of, uh, for example, just to, just to give, uh, just to say, uh, the same uh, systems to interpolate uh, uh, the information, which uh, uh, is based on, uh, again, uh, manuals uh, prepared by uh, agencies uh, of uh, the European Union, like the uh, European Environment Agency. Um, then, uh, of course, uh, at the level of each member state, uh, these uh, scientific agencies can uh, consult uh, universities when they have single, uh, single issues to be addressed uh, about uh, single case studies. For example, uh, our university just, uh, just recently was involved in a case where one single uh, amphibian was subject to uh, a try for, uh, for a, um, an infringement procedure because of uh, the potential effects of forest management on its habitat. And uh, so an experimental cut uh, was, uh, was done to check uh, the effect of uh, uh, forest management on the habitat. So we concluded with data that uh, the, uh, the effect was uh, uh, negligible. Just, uh, this is just an example of how uh, science can uh, be involved in uh, the application and implementation of the Habitats Directive at a local scale. But as I said, then there is also a global scale, especially involved in the uh, reporting. As you, you can imagine the amount of knowledge and also data that is needed to understand if species are a good in a good conservation status and also for different type of habitats so the knowledge of populations and population dynamics but also on the different structures and functions of, of the habitats these are all aspects that uh, need to be part of the uh, reporting, as Tommaso uh, was uh, saying. And at the same time, uh, knowledge of the possible actions made by humans to uh, maintain, for example, semi-natural habitats, uh, it is important and needs to have a strong scientific background to be uh, carried out in a proper way and to maintain these habitats. And also, uh, if we think that uh, in many uh, situations and in many uh, sites, uh, there is uh, an important effort towards the restorations of uh, different habitats.
Okay, I think that gives our listeners a very good overview um, of the network. Now, I guess the next question that would be, you know, how has it worked? Um, and, you know, how have the conservation outcomes differed, uh, you know, since the implementation uh, versus those prior? You know, is more area protected than it previously was? Um, and, you know, are we seeing the types of biodiversity outcomes that we would like to see? In, in short, is it working? So, but um, if we think about area, of course, through time, we have seen an increase in land and also seascape protected. Uh, one important aspect that is taken into consideration now is to improve uh, the area within Natura 2000 regarding marine uh, habitats and, uh, of course, so the seascape. Um, so, uh, we have now uh, around 18%, so one-fifth on the EU land covered by Natura 2000 and uh, uh, nearly 10% of the seascape of the EU. Um, we, before of it, uh, the percentage was, of course, minor, but it is difficult to have this uh, uh, precise information rather than what we have uh, now. And in perspective of uh, the what we have achieved in terms of conservation status of the species, of course, and of habitats, um, in general, we have some uh, contradicting aspects, but uh, the point is that um, more effort, of course, is needed, even though we see that for many species we had an improvement. And for for and also for certain habitats, uh, but the point is that uh, the aim is to have all um, species and habitats of uh, listed in the directive in a favorable conservation status. So that is the aim, and uh, therefore the focus is more to see what is still needed rather than uh, to um, sponsor the uh, targets that have been achieved. But, yes, if I can add uh, something, uh, um, uh, there are some habitats in particular where the uh, progress is uh, more difficult to be achieved. Uh, for example, one point, uh, given that uh, we uh, spoke of uh, uh, semi-natural habitats, is to um, provide the ways to support uh, active management uh, approaches. Um, sometimes probably, especially for very marginal areas, it's uh, easier to uh, do nothing. Uh, it's more difficult to convince uh, uh, landowners to, to act. Uh, one example is uh, the grasslands. Um, which depends uh, on uh, mowing or uh, pasture, uh, so grazing. Uh, in this case, uh, uh, progress is uh, are, uh, also, uh, we can quantify them also in terms of uh, um, the way money, uh, money from the European Union are used by member states. Uh, one important thing uh, is that uh, member states can rely on uh, uh, specific uh, fundings uh, dedicated to Natura 2000. The choice uh, 
to uh, use this. Uh, uh, this depends on decisions taken also at the regional level. So it depends on the stakeholder participation. So when when we talk of the progress, it, I think in Natura 2000 we have not only to consider the natural aspects but also the stakeholder involvement and I think based on my experience since uh, the beginning of uh, this uh, uh, this millennia yeah, because it was in 2000 more or less I saw a much more uh, involvement of people and awareness of the existence of uh, the Natura 2000 network. There are conflicts, of course. It's not uh, all, uh, um, there are not only flowers, <laughs> of course, in the, in the grassland. Sometimes uh, we, have to, uh, we have to consider that there are um, also conflicts, uh, but um, uh, I think that often they are uh, linked to uh, non-complete knowledge of the regulation and uh, non -com not complete knowledge of the opportunities that uh, this uh, piece of uh, regulation can give uh, to uh, stakeholders. Um, that's that's I think the main the main point. But uh, you can uh, uh, see the progress is based on this uh, reporting. Uh, every six years, when they are where they are all uh, very careful um, assessed, even of course sometimes based on expert uh, judgment, especially when we have to do estimation at uh, biographical level. Just to give another example um, with what and in line with what just Tommaso said. Um, in the area where we lived, so the northeastern part of Italy, in the last years we, ha we have seen an increase in the number of wolves, for example, that were not uh, present in the last decades in the, in the area. Uh, so this can be seen as a positive outcome from a conservation perspective, but at the same time now we, need, we are uh, facing uh, conflicts with stakeholders, for so uh, especially with uh, uh, farmers and uh, uh, of course uh, related to uh, keeping uh, cheap uh, and, and pastures. Yeah, and, and that's a topic that'll be familiar to uh, longtime listeners of the podcast as well. We've 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 talked about wolves and um, their reemergence in Europe a few times, and um, and that was always fascinating. So this sounds like a a, a highly successful network. Um, and that leads me then to to my last question or set of questions, um, which is admittedly quite unfair. And that kind of line of questioning is about how would this type of approach be expanded on a global scale? You know, um, the European Union is in many senses unique um, in that it's a governance structure that's cross-national, um, that has some real enforcement capabilities. You know, are there any ideas for potentially first steps that could be taken, you know, on a global scale that would allow something like this to be enacted throughout the world with the vision of eventually getting toward that sort of um, half-Earth preservation? Yeah, indeed, a, a very challenging question. 
And I, and I think that's the, the really big, interesting, open question about the half-Earth proposal is how do you really get there? Because really where we're at right now is we're at about 17% or so, uh, supposed to get at least to, to 18 or so uh, with existing targets. Uh, and now people are talking about 30% by 2030 and even 50% uh, by 2050. But I, I have to say that there's a, it's a very different type of activity. It's a gigantic social process, obviously. It has to be international. It has to operate globally, regionally, and locally. Uh, and when it gets past you know, a quarter or so, 25% or so, uh, you're inevitably getting into issues where you have to consider other forms of land use besides just conservation. Uh, because you, you start to, to eat into uh, areas where you have agriculture and production for human societies, which obviously, you know, our demands for, for land and, and even the ocean are not decreasing, they're increasing. So <clears throat> how to actually uh, scale up, and that's the same is true for Nature 2000. One thing we, we wanted to talk about that we didn't really get into in the paper, but maybe in a subsequent paper, is what would half Europe look like? So if you actually tried to go to that level uh, within the European continent, uh, what would it take? And that's assuming, right, that we already have a European Union uh, to operate with, you know, which includes a whole system of, of uh, legal protections and ways of operating politically and socially, you know, built in. Uh, even doing that, sounds very challenging and, and it's not really clear how doable it is 50 percent by 2050 in Europe through the, the nature of 2000 network I don't know uh, and obviously taking it to the next level going to a system beyond any particular you know governmental network like you know say across the entire you know Europe and Asia because they're obviously connected together how do you, how do you go there? That's that's an even bigger question. Or in areas where governance is a, is a, is an issue, especially you know at international levels, uh, governance across say Africa, there there's a lot of very different types of challenges there. So yeah, I don't think there's any simple answers here. But on the other hand, you have to start with with experience. I think if you just treat everything as an unprecedented effort, you you can't learn from what we already know. And I think Nature 2000 does teach us some really key lessons about what it takes to bring people together across countries, to bring nature together across countries, to connect, to use uh, relationships locally, regionally, and globally to, to build a stronger conservation network that works, that, that, that protects biodiversity, that brings back species that have been very limited in their range. Uh, so I think that we, we have to build on that effort, but there's not going to be a simple just do what they did in Nature 2000 prescription. There's no panacea here. It's going to be a, a, a long-term challenge to, to build a, a stronger uh, effort at, to conserve Earth's biodiversity, hopefully at this, this level, really planetary scale. Uh, I don't know if I can add uh, to your um, comment uh, um, that uh, if uh, I remember one of the first points uh, uh, we said uh, when we began to prepare this uh, article was that the area-based approach uh, maybe um, is not the only approach to calculate uh, the surface uh, 
of Europe, but also of, of the uh, world protected. Uh, because um, mm, just uh, the, the example of the um, environmental assessment uh, under Habitats Directive, it's a good example because it applies also outside the, um, the protected areas, the Natura 2000 sites. And the same is valid for the reporting. The, the grid that I mentioned about the distribution of species and habitats, it's a grid which covers all Europe, not only the areas uh, which boundaries are uh, identified. Um, therefore, probably, even if uh, we calculated 18% uh, of the terrestrial area covered by Natura 2000, it is indeed more if uh, we would be able to assess uh, the buffer uh, and not only buffering the geometrical meaning, but also um, in uh, terms of uh, social involvement uh, and uh, uh, social, if we speak of humans, but also uh, the uh, connection and the connectivity if we speak of uh, animals and plants. So probably uh, we should also uh, think uh, about the uh, the mm, uh, advance uh, or integration of the area-based approach with uh, other ways to uh, assess the uh, the level of protection. Yeah, that's a that's an excellent point, and I and I think that that really needs to be uh, reiterated. Although, like we said. Uh, we didn't actually try to do that kind of assessment. I think maybe that's something to think about now for future work is how do you assess, you know, conservation strategies that aren't just area-based? You know, how do you put together a, an assessment of how well you're doing and what your targets are? Because it, it is, it's true. It's, it's much too simple just to say 50% is protected because what does that mean? There's so many ways to conserve biodiversity and protected areas are not even the best way for a lot of species. So uh, trying to put together a more comprehensive way of forming a proactive target, you know, what do we want to do with biodiversity protection globally? What's the ultimate goal? Uh, it's not just 50%, right? I think it's, it's a lot more than that. And, and that, that's, a, that's a great piece of work that I think the Europeans, again, could lead in this. How, how should we assess the success of Nature of 2000 uh, as a project, and what would be the goal in 2050 of Nature 2000? Yeah, I think uh, at the beginning I was surprised also about uh, the known uh, uh, the, the lack of knowledge of Natura 2000 outside Europe. I think this is still uh, probably a, a missing uh, uh, point, uh, a missing uh, achievement of Natura 2000, uh, the communication and dissemination of uh, interesting uh, concepts, uh, but not only concepts, as I, as I said, also uh, tools and uh, vocabulary, which maybe, maybe can be transposed uh, outside uh, Europe uh, in uh, 
different similar or integrated uh, ways uh, that how we applied in uh, in Europe. Well, I, th- I think the three of you have uh, done a very good job today in, in you know, in communicating that message, um, and I and I hope that it catches on among our listeners and um, you know more people outside of the European Union uh, become aware of Natura two thousand and its successes uh, and its potential as a basis for further conservation efforts uh, across the globe um, and into the future as those targets are uh, set met and achieved, reported on, and, uh, you know, we preserve the biodiversity that we're seeking to preserve. Uh, but anyway, thank you all very much for joining me today. It's been a, you know, great episode, and I've learned quite a bit from it. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you for inviting us. Thank you very thank much. Thank you, James. Thank you, James. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just as a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.